0: The ethical Machines. We are your hosts, Hello. and Samin.
1: The ethical Machines is a series of conversations about humans, machines and ethics. It aims at sparking a deeper, better informed debate about the implications of intelligent systems for society and individuals.
0: For this episode, we invited David J. Klein to talk to us about machine learning, conservation and climate change. Let's dive in. Dive in, dive in, dive in, dive in. Ethical Machines. <laughs> Thanks for making the time. Welcome to Ethical Machines. It's a pleasure to have you on. Maybe we can start with the obvious question. Could you tell us who you are, your background, and what brings you here, basically?
2: Sure. Well, um, I grew up on a ranch in Florida, and I spent many years sort of marveling at nature. At the same time, I was a huge science fiction fan, so I'd come back in and take apart all my motorized toys and put them back together and watch Doctor Who and read Asimov and Bradbury. I eventually decided to go in the technology direction of my career, although I could have easily gone in a different direction. And I went to Georgia Tech, uh, but after a while I, I became increasingly uninspired by the work I was learning about in electrical engineering. So. I started looking for a way to keep myself interested, so I was taking courses in psychology and genetics, and uh, a couple of really important things happened as I was searching. First of all, I happened upon a course called Sensory Ecology. It was taught by a professor at Georgia Tech. The name of the, the professor was David Dusenberry. Sensory ecology is really about information transmission in biological systems and how behavior and morphology. Of organisms co evolves with their information transmission and reception systems. And I was hugely inspired by that course. And so I started looking at ways of combining double E with studies of the brain. So the second important event was I asked around and I found a young professor at Georgia Tech who had recently come there out of the lab of Carver Mead from Caltech. And Carver Mead and his students were the pioneers of this field of neuromorphic engineering. And so I was able to land an undergraduate research assistantship in Steve's lab, and I was doing research and development on neuromorphic vision chips. So we were designing vision chips that were mimicking the processing being done in the mammalian retina. And really, since then, everything I've done has been in that intersection area between neuroscience and engineering. My graduate work was in a EE lab of Shihab Shamas in University of Maryland, but we were doing experimental neuroscience there, studying the processing of sound in auditory cortex. From there on, I was a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Neuroinformatics in Zurich, so I was working on auditory AI projects there and auditory representation learning. And then I came out to Silicon Valley about a decade ago and I joined a company audience where we had the vision of reverse engineering the human auditory system in order to do a better job of speech enhancement and auditory source separation and robust speech recognition and we developed a chip that went into the iPhone and went into the Samsung Galaxy and it was a great success. We were the first company to pull multiple microphones into a smartphone and as these signals are coming in they're first transformed by computational models of the mammalian cochlea. So not using a Fourier transform, but actually using a filter bank inspired by the the mammalian cochlea. So from there on, I've been working on various projects and various startups, including my own. I was using autoencoders starting in 2008 to beat the -the state-of-the-art standards in video compression. And I've been working on a bunch of different projects as a consultant adding mostly deep learning fueled intelligence to various products ranging from face recognition to, you know, snoring recognition. So on the conservation side, I was lucky to get connected to these researchers at University of California, Santa Cruz. They were starting a company several years ago, which is called Conservation Metrics. And this company, it was based on their work of applying passive acoustic monitoring technology to monitor and help save endangered seabirds mostly. Over time I developed technology for them and now they have this analysis pipeline for all the acoustic data that they get in. So the biologists who are analysts in the company have the ability to build deep learning models to detect endangered species of interest and get to a more detailed understanding of how these populations are doing and how they're responding to conservation interventions. And so that's been exciting in that it's had a very large impact on their work. Their analysis throughput has increased by 10 times compared to methods they were using before using deep learning models and um, I think we're just scratching the surface. We've expanded from audio processing to image processing, mostly land-based camera networks uh, that are used by conservationists today, and there's a lot of potential. I mean, the vision going beyond that is integrating all kinds of sensor sources, all the way from environmental DNA sampling, all the way up to satellite-based imagery. All of these sensor types have a bearing on the the wildlife conservation and more broadly environmental conservation problem. So following up
0: from there, the research paper that you published a while back called Deep Learning for Large-Scale Biodiversity Monitoring, how does this play into the work you just mentioned?
2: Uh, It really has to do with the, the vision. So conservation metrics, we've been solving very specific problems in the conservation sector using deep learning and it's great to be able to work with conservation scientists and their existing projects today and to see you know what problems they have and how can the process be streamlined using machine intelligence and that's why conservation metrics was labeled as a laser in this recent TechCrunch article by Siobhan Zillis. we're very much focused on specific problems that exist in projects today but there's this broader vision the idea that we can leverage these sensor networks that we're putting out in these remote areas. So, we have these things across the world. I mean, we have them in Australia, we have them in Hawaii, we have them in coastal areas of the United States. And there's at least an order of magnitude greater need for monitoring. I mean, right now we're, we're using these microphones and camera networks on the ground, but the conservation sector believes that there's a lot of value that can be gleaned from. For example, satellite imagery or DNA sampling called eDNA. If we really want to have a detailed enough understanding of these ecosystems so that we can really engineer solutions on less than a (laughs) 10-year runway, I mean, right now, we don't really have that understanding. It's actually one of the, the most important insights that I've gotten in working with biologists and ecologists is that today, it's actually not really known on a scientific basis how well different conservation interventions will work. And it's because we just don't have a lot of data. I mean, these conservation projects, think about trying to save populations of endangered seabirds that might feed in islands close to Japan, but breed in islands close to Hawaii. I mean, it's a huge area. There's no way you can send people out there to get enough data to develop a scientific understanding of the problems and how these species are being impacted by human actions. So. We need technology, we need to deploy sensors and many different types of sensors to monitor these populations and monitor these ecosystems and we need algorithms like deep learning based algorithms that we can use to distill insights from this data because it's way too much data. I mean step one is getting the data but it's way way too much data for people to look at directly. We have a project in Kauai where we're detecting the sound of an endangered bird colliding with power lines there. And we've discovered that it's a much bigger problem than it was previously thought because we were able to extend the temporal scale of the monitoring using these microphone networks. When we get data back from the lab, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of hours of audio. It would take a single person 10 years to, you know, just to listen to that, let alone find things of interest. So that's where we're applying deep learning. We're, we're enabling these biologists through various interesting means to build models and then distill these hundreds of thousands of hours or many millions of images down to a small subset that they can use in their back-end analysis of how population densities are changing.
1: Um, One more question, like how this relates not just to extinction of global animal populations, but also to things like state of biodiversity or, or climate change. What would you generally say is the impact machine intelligence in a kind of broad sense can have in this area? And is it already having enough impact?
2: The situation appears to be very dire. I mean, if you look at global biodiversity, we've lost about half of the world's animal populations since 1970. Species extinctions are orders of magnitude above the natural background rate and uh, a lot of scientists are calling this the sixth extinction and, and there's no debating that it's due to human causes and it's a bunch of different human causes. The number one cause today is not climate change. It's direct exploitation. You know, it's, it's farming. It's fishing. Then we have pollution. You know, Amphibians and birds are being just wiped out. Insect populations as well. And, uh, you know, global spending on this has increased in recent decades. So the UN has recognized that this is going downhill at an alarming rate. And right now we're spending about $20 billion a year globally. But all metrics are showing that it's not really helping. Um, When you ask, well, why isn't it helping? What could we be doing better? And there's not really great answers out there right now. Funding is being driven by emotion and, and logic and some models, but it's not really being based on data. You know, we can argue that certain species that we care about because they're cute, or, you know, we can make impassioned arguments and that's really the kind of thing that's driving money flow today but uh, there's not a lot of data that's showing us how well we're doing with a particular kind of intervention versus another kind you know let's talk about birds again you know should we remove an invasive snake or we should we build artificial nests which one of those is more effective Um, usually we just argue for one we do it and then many years later we determine if it worked or not so so your question is about how can technology help So, we do expect that climate change will become the number one problem pretty quickly because it's shifting habitats at a rate that natural ecosystems cannot keep up with. We're eroding the value of nature, so we can get into how do we measure the value of nature. Actually, that's a really interesting topic. The two things we can do, obviously, on the technology side, one is trying to slow climate change, and we can do that by various means. We can innovate on technology for energy, clean technology that um, is much less disruptive to our atmosphere. We can innovate on solutions for transportation that uses less energy. So that's the one side of things, trying to slow the degradation. And the other side of things where I've been more focused is developing systems that enable scientists to understand these systems that we're modifying so that as we make conservation interventions we can say on a more fine-grained basis how well they're working. Ultimately we might need to understand these systems so that we can restore them
0: I mean, the question you just raised, how do you value nature? I want to dive into that as you brought it up. What is the cost function of valuing nature? It seems like a really hard problem to crack.
2: Is there any thinking around this? There's been quite a bit of work in this area called ecosystem services. It's economists and biologists, ecologists are getting together and performing an increasingly detailed account of how nature serves us. You know, what more tangible value do we derive from ecosystems and there's a bunch of different ways. You know, if you look at how we use bee populations to pollinate crops and all the value we would get from those crops. The fact that ecosystems form natural buffers that protect our populations from storms. The fact that trees take a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere and therefore regulate our planetary temperature. And many, many, many other ways. I mean we even derive pesticides and medicines from nature. So if you add all that up, we're currently at an estimate of around 125 trillion dollars a year of value that we're extracting from nature. You know, that's roughly double global GDP. So that work is going on, but of course there's a great debate about ecosystem services. You know, can you actually quantify because a lot of people will say, a future with no nature is not a future I want to be in. How do you quantify life? That's a really great question. I'm not aware of work beyond brainstorming. You know, when you start looking at the uses of reinforcement learning for monitoring and maybe maintaining natural systems, it does beg the question, OK, what is, what's the reinforcement signal? What are the objective functions here that are be, being optimized? And um, I don't have a great answer for that, but it's, it's a great area of debate and discussion because that may be one of the only solutions we have. The approach that I've been taking right now is, okay, we're getting in these petabytes of data from sensors, and we're getting that down to a very, very small subset. But that may not end up working out. The scale of the problem may be too large. I mean... How many hundreds of trillions of dollars are we going to have to spend to restore these systems? I think the much better approach would be to let these systems take care of themselves. But what is the objective function? It's not just the presence of activity, like life activity. One of the great examples is the concept of the ecological trap. So we have areas like Central Park in New York which are thought to be ecological traps. So it attracts animals. There's a lot of life there. But there's not a lot of renewable life. It's kind of a dead end. So if we were just designed a reinforcement learning system to say, okay, let's find automatic actions that will increase the diversity and plentifulness of life, in a certain location, that in itself is not enough. So we need to have a much more detailed understanding of what is a healthy ecosystem. There's always a balance there. Today we don't have a detailed scientific understanding. We're just scratching the surface. So that's why I'm excited about developing technology that can help us see what's going on.
1: And what would you say? Because one of the arguments being made, the singularity will take care of it. Moore's law will automatically solve, you know, climate change and animal extinction and related problems, or almost like the, you know, the invisible hand of the market will will fix it. You know, like yeah. So what would you say to to this kind of?
2: Well, I th- yeah, I think that's, I think it's pretty dangerous thinking. I mean, uh, you know, can anybody point to any kind of technology projection of more than 30 years? that's ended up being accurate in any significant way, any actionable way. I mean, why do we think this is different now? Basing our feature on a wait-and-see attitude, it's like, uh, it's just dangerous. I think problems like this are going to be solved with a lot of work, and work on all these three things, technology, science, and politics, you know, policy. We need to tackle all these problems in a very methodical and coordinated way. And the thing is, even as we fail, there'll be a lot of failures, but we'll be learning a lot. And we'll be creating an understanding that will be much more broadly useful for humankind. So the idea that technology innovation is passed down to humans from the mountain, and it's just going to solve everything, to me, doesn't ring true.
0: You hinted at politics and policy-making, and I'm going to frame that as culture. Yeah. This notion that large-scale change will happen if technological change and cultural change go hand in hand. And so do you actually see machine learning help change our culture, so our beliefs, our causes, our priorities?
2: That's a, such an interesting question. I think that as we get a more detailed understanding of natural ecosystems, in part by attacking this problem, that we'll, we'll start to be able to have the ability to create these cyborg ecosystems. So I would recommend you looking at the work of Brad Entrell, he's an architect, and there's others like him, they envision this future where we have this kind of confluence of intelligence in monitoring the environment, and also robotics, and also, you know, if you look at advances in material sciences, we can start to create cities that are much more tightly integrated with nature. You know, cities where nature more flows through, through cities, and we understand how to interface with nature in a much more fine-grained way. The aesthetic that drives me in that area has been science fiction, depictions of future Earth, you know, future Earths that are very green, where we have nature integrated with cities, down to our energy innovations are inspired by nature, you know, our architecture is inspired by nature. There's another part to it that's a little bit more weird, but I think also worth discussing, because now we have a much more detailed understanding of genes, you know, so how to interpret genes and now modify them, That's actually one of the big impact areas right now of deep learning. And if you look at the work that's being done in image processing, the generative and creative art that's coming out of that, there's a future in which I believe that the interface with nature could become a lot more intimate at the genetic level. So we'll be able to start envisioning hybrid structures between humans and the natural world that we create with these generative models.
1: So this would give would give a new meaning to a personalization. To the, <laughs> yes. <so. laughs> Very um, different kind of generative recommender systems. Yeah. So I mean, I bring
2: this up as kind of like a vision and an aesthetic fuel. I go about my day to day being the laser. You know, looking at problems and and solving specific problems. But you know, as you go along, you need something that is driving you in a direction.
0: Obviously, humans are driving a lot of these problems we've been discussing here. And so I think probably a logical way of approaching a solution is uh, social engineering, in a sense. Um, so I suppose using machine learning to influence populations, maybe that we'll
2: see some of that, or we're already seeing some of that. That's a very interesting point. I would love to be able to use tools And they're starting to to mature, you know, where we can start to understand the whole chain from how energy is derived and how it's used, and then ultimately what you're using that energy for. You know, Andre Karpathy had an interesting tweet a few months ago that got me thinking. He made some calculations that showed how much equivalent wood he was burning in powering a GPU to solve a particular machine learning problem. I think it would be fascinating to have a more detailed understanding of that whole chain. Where the energy is coming from, how that energy is formed, and how we're using it. And so with that visualization, I think as a society we'll start to see more optimal ways of, of living. The one that we discuss a lot, obviously, is transportation. I mean, the fact that cities, well, in the United States in particular, and, and, and in China, are just, are just ludicrous in how much energy we spend getting around to buy milk and to work at our desk jobs with no thought about consequences on a day-to-day basis. Uh, it's interesting to discuss how There'll be a cultural change for everyday, smaller scale, mundane tasks once we start to be able to visualize this kind of energy flow.
1: Maybe shifting gears a bit, when you talked earlier about consultancy for social good, in a sense, or for, for ah, yes. meaningful you know, problems to yes. solve, you tend to hear more and more this kind of X for social good. So what is your experience on, on running profitable social enterprise?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting time right now. There's so many for-good and for-profit companies starting up, and there's a, there's a very healthy debate going on about whether or not that's a good thing. The reason it's happening is partially because folks trying to do the right thing, trying to implement social good in nonprofit organizations, have been frustrated. I mean, they've been really frustrated by the slow pace of progress and the fact that they don't have access to the top quality talent And, uh, you know, they spend a lot of their time trying to raise money, and and so they see things happening in the tech world that are much more rapidly innovating through this ethos of competition and disruption. And I think we have benefited from that, but there's a lot of problems to solve there still. I mean, I think it's a great thing to try to flesh out. The thing is, we want something that's more flexible. We're trying to find an interesting way to structure things so that the act of solving the problem generates enough profit to support a vibrant technology innovation scene more like the traditional tech startup. One of the things you have to guard against is mission drift. You know, time will tell. What's the best strategy in doing that? I think that it is a dangerous thing to have money-driving decisions now because the people that care the least about the mission and the most about money will tend to get the most power within organizations unless we can have ways of diligently protecting against that kind of thing.
0: Could you envision, uh, let's say, the year 2025, where an entity like Google is a major player in um, renewables or conservation? Could you envision such a future?
2: I could envision such a future, yes. Newsflash, you know, energy is big business. And uh, it's right now, it's being dominated by the fossil fuel industry, but uh, that's going to change. It's going to be something much cleaner, much more efficient, and that transition will create a lot of wealth. A whole new global leadership that has the planet's health much more in their minds. I hope I can see in 70 years or so, what that looks like. I think we're going to be beyond what we currently see in solar power and wind power. We're going to have much more interesting cyborg interfaces with the natural world. In Germany,
0: they have this amazing transformation unfolding in real time now with 30% peak time energy production now on renewables. But the thing that really gives me hope is that half of that renewable energy is citizen-controlled hands good point cooperative hands and there's this kind of silent revolution of distributed power unfolding and distributed structures that control the tech basically which is very uplifting from my perspective
2: that's something that i've just recently become interested in and aware of these kind of distributed value chain systems there's a lot of talk about bitcoin and blockchain and you know that's something that i didn't fully understand the potential of for these kinds of markets until recently, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to digging more into that and understanding how they can be leveraged. You can imagine systems where this planetary network of sensors is being put into a global distributed CDN, and solving the most critical problems with that data will set the price of the data and the value of collecting data, and the value of solving problems with that data. I do think that machine intelligence is going to be a big part of this. I think it's debatable how much that will add to a human understanding of these systems. I tend to be on the side of we as humans use machine intelligence ultimately to drive insight. These large-scale machine intelligence systems will add an incredible amount of understanding of how the natural world works.
1: For instance, here in Stockholm, we're having a project where we're actually looking at windmills. Windmills are, are highly inefficient in the sense that they produce energy, but you don't really know how much energy it produces where or when, because right. you, need, uh, you need a good weather model. Yes, uh, and, and that's you know super difficult to do. There's so a lot of things to win there by using things like deep learning, making models much better, and thereby also making things much more efficient.
2: Yes, my understanding is that that's one of the primary drivers right now of the increase. The percentage of total energy in the United States coming from wind is being largely driven by more accurate weather prediction models. That didn't happen by accident. You know, that actually happened through policy, and that policy was multi-dimensional. There was policies to put funding into large-scale computing systems that facilitate this kind of work put money into funding algorithmic research that can lead to improvements in weather predictions, and the hope was that those would lead to increased uptake of wind power, and that's happening. So that's a great example of this multi-pronged technology, science, and politics that can be successful. But there's a lot more that can be done. We can't claim any kind of victory right now.
1: So you mentioned a few things which kind of give hope for the future one is cultural change that people become more aware of these things but then also develop more technology to, to address these issues better metrics more accurate interventions and things like restoration
2: yes geoengineering this is scary but potentially inevitable outcome
1: so which other things what kind of excites you let's say at nips what are you interested in at nips um, I think the area that I'm
2: personally the most excited about is actually the, one of the furthest away from my domains of experience, which is genetics, the technology evolution and genetic transcription technology. It's on a double exponential, you know, so Moore's law is this exponential relationship, but genetic technology is on this double exponential. And it's just, it's now affordable. You know, 10 years it was impossible, and now it's affordable to fully sequence, you know, the human genome and anything else we can get our hands on. And that's going to continue. So this technology is going to be everywhere. And deep learning is going to be a big part of that. So there have been a couple startups recently, including Deep Genomics and Atomwise that have started up to tackle this problem. Existing players such as Illumina are, are very excited about the potential And, you know, these startups are looking at everything from drug discovery to cancer diagnosis based on very small blood samples. Um, We have it being used in precision agriculture, you know, that we can take environmental samples like very small air soil samples and detect disease and problems and have information we can use to optimize agriculture. And, of course, now there's not just the analysis, but now we have the generative part of that with CRISPR and the related technologies. We're just starting. I mean, if you look at the technology that's being used today for genetic analysis, let's say deep learning models, they're much much more simplistic than what we see in these large-scale image recognition systems. They're borrowing from image processing and, and speech recognition, and they're showing that, you know, like so many other things, Right off the bat, we're seeing large gains in recognition accuracy for detecting how certain drugs bind to different sites on a sequence. You know, it's been projected that the genomics industry is going to increase by tenfold in the coming few years. I think that is true. It's going to become a huge, huge industry. And machine learning and specialized deep learning architectures for genetic analysis and for genetic editing are going to become a thing in the next few years. I mean, the cost decrease is
0: obviously the most prominent sign of this unfolding revolution, really. Um, But as well, it opens up some rather terrifying scenarios where you can start the gene drive from the comfort of your bedroom and probably try to measure the impact on a large-scale biosystem on your deep learning model at home, rather than somewhere on AWS, but you're only going to get that far. I mean, these models probably will, on the dark side, become a reality as well then.
2: Yes, yeah, that's, um, there's a dark side to all of these things. Uh, these powerful technologies, they have such destructive power if used in the wrong way, intentionally or unintentionally. And so how do we address that? I mean, we address it by understanding, by, by a hands-on approach, by discussion, and deciding together as a species where we should be applying our energies and how we should be using things, and to have as much transparency as possible across the board. So, are you a
0: realist or are you an optimist? Or what would you call yourself?
2: Well? <laughs> I'm definitely an optimist. Yeah, I am an optimist. I've changed over time. You know, when I was younger, when I would go into kind of a meditative state, I would envision things completely falling apart and potentially quickly. <laughs> but as I've advanced in my career and I have the ability now to talk to policymakers and talk to people in technology and you know talk to people on the ground doing the work I'm a lot more optimistic I see that at least in the people that I have come in contact with and admittedly that's compared to global power structures it's a very small slice but I have become optimistic I can see that developers in the future will have so much power to implement change you know we tend to be a lot that strives for scientific truth and optimization And I think we will collectively decide on optimization for good. And the thing is, you know, good is not an objective thing. It's something that we all have to continually revisit as a species. If you made it this far, thanks for
0: listening.
1: And also, we would really love to hear your comments and any kind of feedback. So drop us a line at info at ethicalmachines.com. See you next time. Adios.